From the campus of George Washington University, welcome to WRGW's Pin Drop, the show where each week we spin the globe, drop a pin on a different country, and take a look at the big issues facing it. I'm Francisco Camacho, here as your co-host alongside Taylor McKinney to guide us through today's show as we explore a tropical paradise, the country of Mauritius. Specifically, the island nation in the Indian Ocean is at what may be a pivotal point for its democracy. Plus, as the United States and China intensify their geopolitical rivalry, some are saying Mauritius could find itself stuck in the middle. But first, some big news over a decades-long territorial dispute with the United Kingdom, who has signaled its willingness to hand over the Chagos Archipelago to Mauritius. Joining us for the latest insights, and as our first ever live guest on Pindrop, we welcome former U.S. Ambassador to Mauritius, Mark Irwin. As always, we'll conclude with an amazing panel of students to debrief the show. On today's panel, we have two GW students from Mauritius, Arushi Kari, who is a freshman double majoring in psychology and political science, and Zoe Leclesio, a freshman majoring in international affairs. Before we get into the news, it's country profile time. We don't expect you to know everything about Mauritius. We certainly didn't before this week. So here's the rundown from my co-host, Taylor McKinney. Mauritius is one of the only places in the world to not have an indigenous population. First being colonized by the Dutch, who wiped out the famed native dodo bird, now memorized on the country seal, after the Dutch, Mauritius was occupied by the French, and later by the British, who bought them, who brought with them Indian migrant laborers, the descendants of whom make up a majority of the country's modern population. Mauritius gained independence from the United Kingdom in 1968. Two years later, in 1970, Time magazine had this to say. When the tiny 720 square mile Indian Ocean Island won independence from Britain, one might have gotten the idea that it was serving as a model for a less elevated region. Ringed by silver sands and azure waters, dotted with scarlet flame trees and emerald sugar plantations, it was suffering nonetheless from an economic stagnation, staggering unemployment, mounting racial tensions, and, and mounting racial tensions. At least 24 people died in savage riots just before the independence ceremonies, and Britain had to fly in troops from Singapore to restore order. Despite what has been described as a rocky start, Mauritius today is a remarkably remarkable success story. Since 2010, Mauritius's GDP has grown consistently by about 3 to 4% each year, only interrupted in 2020 by the COVID-19 pandemic. Unemployment in Mauritius was at 6.3% before the pandemic, much lower than its neighbors and down from the peak of, of 10% in 2005. Moreover, despite the diverse racial makeup of the island, the, econo the, excuse me, the Economist ranks Mauritius as one of the only 24 fully democratic countries in the world today, even scoring higher than the United States. In short, the island has undergone quite a rags to riches story in the past five decades since independence. With that out of the way, here's some fast facts about Mauritius. Its capital is Port Louis. The dial code is plus 230. The currency is the Mauritian rupee. The population is 1.26, wait, I'm sorry, 1,266 million as of 2021 by the World Bank. The continent is Africa. Its prime minister is Pravindi Janagid. 
of the official language is English. Fun fact, after he visited the remote Mauritius in 1896, Mark Twain quoted an islander as saying, Mauritius was made first and then heaven, and heaven was copied after Mauritius. And the national anthem is the motherland. Which we will be playing now as performed by the U.S. Navy Band. Welcome back. Now, moving on to our big issues for today, our explainers, if you will. We're going to go over a few. The first one we're going to talk about is the Chagos Archipelago. Located halfway between Mauritius and India, this seven-island seven Chagos Archipelago is currently occupied and administered by the United Kingdom. While the only current residents are soldiers at the joint U.S.-U.K. military base, the islands were home to the Chagosian people until the British expelled them in the late 1960s and early 1970s. Most fled to Mauritius, where the government has sought to reclaim the Chagos Archipelago, and has promised that they would resettle Chagosian refugees who want to return. While the issue was at a standstill for decades, in 2021, the Universal Postal Union banned British stamps from being used in the archipelago, hindering the logistics of the UK-US base. We at Pindrop reached out to the British administration of the islands and were referred to the following statement from British Foreign Secretary James Cleverly, which he delivered in November of 2022. Taylor? Then Prime Minister, my right honorable friend, the member of the Southwest Norfolk, and the Prime Minister Juganov of the UN General Assembly, the UK and Mauritius have decided to begin negotiations on the exercise of sovereignty sovereignty over the British Indian Ocean Territory, the BIOT, the Chagos Archipelago. Through negotiations, taking into account relevant legal proceedings, it is our intention to secure an agreement on the basis of international law that will resolve all outstanding issues, including those related to the former inhabitants of the Chagos Archipelago. This will allow the UK and Mauritius, as close Commonwealth partners, to work even more closely together to tackle the regional and global security challenges that face us all. We will seek to strengthen significantly our cooperation on, U on Indian ocean security, maritime security and maritime protection, the conservation of the environment, climate change, respect for human rights, and tackle illegal migration, illegal fishing, drugs and armed trafficking, as well as bilateral cooperation on the range of other issues. We will, we will work to do this in cooperation with key allies and partners in the region. The UK and Mauritius have reiterated that any agreement between our two countries will ensure the continued effective operation of the joint UK-US military base of, on Diego Garcia, which plays a vital role in regional and global security. We recognize the US and India's interests and will keep them informed of progress. 
The UK and Mauritius have agreed to engage in constructive negotiations with a view to arriving to add an agreement by early next year. But as these negotiations continue over the Chagos Archipelago, they are also facing legal challenges from Chagosians. A lawsuit filed in January against the UK Foreign, Commonwealth and Development Office alleges that the talks are being held without consulting Chagosian people, and the lawsuit is seeking to halt negotiations. The next big issue we want to discuss is whether the democracy of the Mauritius, of Mauritius, long celebrated as one of the strongest in the entire world, might be declining. According to the Economist Democracy Index, Mauritius is among the world's 20 healthiest democracies, scoring higher than even the United States. Indeed, when Afrobarometer surveys were conducted about a decade ago, 76% of Mauritians said their country was a well-functioning democracy. But in 2022, in 2020 rather, the same survey found that only 59% still agree with that statement, with one-third of respondents saying either that their democracy had major flaws or that Mauritius was no longer a democracy at all. Last year, the Vietnam Institute ranked Mauritius as one of the 10 countries whose democracy was declining the fastest in the whole world. This distrust among Mauritians of their institutions intensified with the 2019 election. The government was accused by some of injudiciously using state media to influence the election and of voting fraud by having 1,200 Bangladeshi nationals vote multiple times. But despite these allegations, it should be noted that both the Southern African Development Community and the French diplomatic mission to the country observed the elections and deemed them to be free and fair. Since his election, Prime Minister Pravin Jagnot has been accused of censoring the press and silencing opposition. In April 2021, the Information and Communication Technologies Authority announced plans to monitor all social media content, raising concerns about violations of privacy and what the government will do to the monitored content. In May of 2021, police officers detained former Attorney General Rama Valaide. Uh, Jugnut had charged him with violating Mauritius's coronavirus laws. Valaide had organized a small event to advance to uh, advocate for the rights of Palestinian people and peace in the Middle Eastern region. But although these events raise concerns, polls of Mauritians still show overwhelmingly strong support for democracy, rejection of authoritarianism, and liberal freedoms of, liberal freedoms of speech and for the press receiving wide support. Indeed, despite the backsliding concerns, Mauritius is still considered a full democracy by the Economist Democracy Index. The last issue we want to talk about briefly is, well, China. Isn't that in the news everywhere today? Lastly, Mauritius might be part of this growing geopolitical battleground between the U.S. and China. In 2021, China and Mauritius signed a free trade agreement to promote, quote, the development of a renminbi clearing and settlement facility in the territory of Mauritius, and also to, quote, exp um, to share expertise in fintech to promote innovation in financial services. The move is believed to be a part of China's small state-first diplomatic strategy, where they prioritize getting small countries on board before large regional powers. It is theorized that this is for one or both of two reasons. It might be that China sees the values of a friendship with any state as equal since each state, no matter how big or small, is worth one vote in the United Nations General Assembly, where China seeks to push their agenda forward to the international community. 
It may also be that China hopes that by proving itself a good partner with tiny yet financially important Mauritius, they can develop an ethos to get larger neighbors on side as well. Whatever the reason, Mauritius is an important investment hub in the Southeast African area, and while it is not evident that the U.S. and China will compete over influence there, some observers see it as one of many potential future political battlegrounds between the great powers. Joining me now is the former U.S. ambassador, is the former US ambassador to Mauritius under the Clinton administration. Mr. Mark Irwin. He currently lives in Charlotte, where he is the president of Irwin Capital. Ambassador Irwin, thank you very much for joining us today. Great to be with you. Thank you. It's great. It's great. Very great to have you here. Um, I want to go ahead and, and and start with the question of um, what have you seen in Mauritius? It, it, that sounds like a very broad question, but you came here, went there in the 90s, um, which is roughly the midpoint between its independence in 68 and, and present day. What is your general analysis of what we've seen as far as the progress of the country goes before your ambassadorship, during and after? Uh, well, I was ambassador there from 99 to 2001, so I was there a couple of years. Uh, and uh, I found it to be a fierce democracy, a capitalistic society. Um, the population is uh, made up of 70-something uh, percent uh, of Indian heritage, 20-something uh, percent of um, uh, original African slave heritage, uh, and then a mix of Chinese and French and British and you name it, uh, there, there's a real mix there, but it's a, it's a, it's a microcosm. Uh, and uh, the, uh, as you probably know, uh, it was ruled by the uh, French for many years uh, until uh, the, the French privateers stationed there took uh, something like 175 uh, British uh, ships uh, for their cargo, uh, demasted them and brought them into port, and um, they were privateers. Uh, and the result was that the British uh, sent their fleet down in, in uh, 1810. Uh, they took over Mauritius as a British colony. Uh, it was a, um, a sugar-based economy at that time. Uh, and and the uh, French settlers uh, owned the plantations and the slaves were the, the labor. Uh, the British freed all the slaves in 1834, which I find interesting. It was 30 years before America uh, freed its slaves. But they freed all their slaves in all of their colonies uh, in 1834. And so the French... Uh, plantation owners uh, turned to India and brought in indentured workers under contract from India with the promise of after seven years, they could become citizens and free uh, in exchange for having come over to work the plantations. So the result was that uh, it has a strong British culture, it has a strong French culture, has a strong Indian culture and it has a, a strong native culture, native uh, African culture. 
So all of those cultures mix well together there. Uh, and uh, when I was there, uh, Mauritius had the highest literacy rate in all of Africa, and it was actually a higher literacy rate than we have here in the United States. Uh, one of the first things that they did upon receiving their freedom in 1968, or their independence, should I say, in 1968, was they instituted free education for every child, uh, no matter what the background of the child was. Free education as far as they could go, including university. And if they could qualify to get into university, uh, they received a free education. And if they didn't have enough places in Mauritius for the students that wanted to go to university, they would get a free education, university education in either France or England, their choice. So it was very interesting. So they educated their people and the original um, first president uh, named uh, Ramgalam, uh, he decided that the only real asset that Mauritius had, because it was a, essentially a volcanic island, uh, and so it had no natural resources uh, except soil, which was growing sugar, uh, and so he decided back in 68 that the only real asset they had was their people, all of their people. And the only way to capitalize on that real asset was to educate them. And so to this day, they have free education there for every student as far as they're willing to go and are able to go. So it's a great culture. You know, you were talking earlier about the Chagos Islands and uh, we we have we leased uh, the islands from uh, the British, uh, and we we have a major base there called Diego Garcia, uh, and it's a staging ground for uh, our uh, power, uh, and we have many ships there and supplies to, and in fact the wars in the Middle East were supplied from Diego Garcia, so it's a very important. Uh, location for America, and we we have a lease, uh, and I don't remember how many more years it runs, but it's a, it's a long, long time. And part of the deal was that the uh, that the Mauritians would uh, lease it to us uh, for a dollar a year, uh, and they would relocate the Chagosians from that one island, Diego Garcia, uh, to Mauritius, and they also sent some to Seychelles. I was ambassador there also. Uh, and they re they resettled them in those locations and provided them with with uh, education, educational opportunities, gave them stipends for a number of years and so on. And some of the people settled in very well and others uh, wanted to go home. I can't blame them. Uh, that was their island nation of origin. But there's nothing there except a military base and a few coconuts. The only industry they had was um, the industry of the, the coconut, the uh, the shells of the coconut. So, uh, Yeah, the, the copra, is that what it's called? The copra, yeah, that's right, uh, which, which is a good product, but it didn't support that many people, and there were not that many Chagosians there at the time, but some people would like to go back, but there's nothing to really to go back to. Uh, it's a, it's a, uh, 
if the base wasn't there, there wouldn't be anything there to speak of. But anyway, that's a different subject. Does that answer your question? No, more thoroughly than I than I was expecting. Uh, I, I, it's very interesting. I feel like in that I've learned a lot. It, it has seemed in researching it in your comments about having free education, even if they can't give you university on the island, they'll pay for you to go to a different country. It, it really sounds like it checks a lot of the boxes of what like the modern American left um, liberal Democrats are pushing for. Um, so very interesting in that way. These are these are policies you don't often associate with an African or, or, or Indian island country. Um, I, I want to ask you about about that first. Then, what what do you think it is about Mauritius that makes it such a success story? Is it is it the, is it something about the geographic appeal of of the tourism industry? Is it something about its experience with independence? Why does Mauritius succeed where other nations in the region seem to be struggling to maintain the same quality of life? Well, that's an interesting question because when when the Mauritians sought their independence from Britain and become a, a member of the Commonwealth, but not ruled by Britain, uh, the, the British government did a, a very thorough study and they said that this island nation will fail. Uh, it has nothing except, uh, the, the labor of the slaves of the, of the then freed slaves, but labor uh for sugar plantations that's their only industry they're uneducated so on and so forth and so they're going to fail uh, and they published that study and the mauritians proved them wrong and it, it all goes back to in my opinion that original founding government uh that was put in place by ramgalam and his uh his name was sir sawisiger ramgalam uh and his cabinet of people that he put together were in my opinion, somewhat like our founding fathers, because they had a vision of what the island could be that others didn't share. Uh, and that's why the British said it's going to be a failure. They proved them completely wrong. Uh, and over the years, Mauritius is the wealthiest nation in all of Africa per capita. Uh, it has one of the lowest unemployment rates. I don't know if it's the lowest, but it has one of the lowest. It has the highest literacy rate in all of Africa. Uh, and, and it's all, I think, due to the fact that they are a fierce democracy coupled with a capitalistic society. If you, if you're willing to work hard in Mauritius, you can succeed no matter who you are, uh, no matter what your heritage is. Uh, and that's, Kind of who we are in America too. I was about to you know, say. Mark Twain went there in the 1800s, and uh, you you know the saying that he said that God invented Mauritius, and then he used that as the model for heaven. Uh, Mark Twain was a man with words, but he loved it there. Uh, I've traveled all over the world in in my life, and uh, there are only two places in the world that I would say are the the finest, absolute finest places in the world to live if I couldn't live in the United States. Uh, and one is Mauritius and the other is um, uh, New Zealand. Both of those are magnificent countries with lovely people. And really, it's the people of the country, wherever you are, that make it a great place. It's not the natural resources. It's not the beauty, uh, but it is the people. I, and the I, Mauritian I, people are just lovely people. I can say in my my 
relatively modest uh, global traveling experience. I completely echo that, the difference that the people do make. Um, I do want to ask, uh, ask you this. Um, this might be our last question or second to last question. Hope it, hopefully we have more time. Um, you talk about the way that they proved the expectations wrong. I mean, we, we read an excerpt from Time magazine um, just before we hooked you up here, and it, it said the same thing. Like, in 1968, no one thought that this country was going to be such a success. Now, there are some amount of concerns that under Prime Minister uh, Jagnath that things could deteriorate a little bit. Um, we pointed out that it's still considered a very healthy democracy. Statistics are still very good. But relative to where they were 10 years ago, it is a noticeable decline, relatively speaking. Are you, from what you've heard, are you at all concerned about this? Do you have any concerns about the, 2000, about the 2019 election, for example? Um, how do you feel the future of the island is? Do you think it is still pretty securely positive? Absolutely. I, I know Pravin Jagnat. I, I knew him long before he was prime minister. I knew his father, uh, who was prime minister, Saranarud Jagnat. Uh, and um, I, I would tell you that I think their democracy is strong and will continue to be strong. The people down there love their freedoms. Uh, they, they, they are like us. Uh, but like every democracy, democracy is not a, it's not a, uh, stable, fixed thing. It's, it's really a, a range, uh, that varies up and down. Democracies, uh, grow stronger and grow weaker. Uh, people would say here in the United States, our democracy has been under threat. Uh, and, it's not what it used to be just 20 years ago or 30 years ago or whatever. Uh, and that's, that's true. We, we struggle with maintaining our democracy just like any, because with freedoms comes opportunity for both good and evil. Uh, and so when we struggle with our democracy, we think, Oh my goodness, uh, things are going to be awful next year and the year after and so on. But, Somehow, democracies in many cases are self-healing. Uh, when they wander a little too far off course, you know, maybe one uh, prime minister or one president or one whatever the leader is of a country is more authoritarian than the next. Uh, and maybe one government is leans far to the right and then the next government might lean farther to the left and become a little more socialistic or whatever. And that's that's the nature of democracy. So I think that Mauritius is a strong democracy. Um, I don't believe that Pravin Jagnat is uh, going to take it any farther toward a autocracy from what I know of him. Uh, and so I, I, feel, I feel positive about the future of Mauritius and its because its people love its democracy and they will stand up for it, just like our people here stand up for our democracy. No, ab absolutely. And to reiterate that, um, what you said, you know, for all that we talk about, that there are concerns about it, um, the Economist Democracy Index, the newest one, which was released just this year, showed that there was actually an improvement relative to 2019 and 
2020 and 2021 in the assessment of the strength of Mauritius's democracy. So it doesn't appear as of the past year or so that it's been declining as some might have worried it was, or at least not to the same extent. I, I want to close off here, and these we just have a couple more minutes left. Um, and I want to ask you, you talked a bit about the strategic importance of the base at Diego Garcia, uh, the Chacos Archipelago, how it has played an important role. As the UK is in these negotiations about potentially returning some part or all of, of, of the islands, working to return them to, to the island of Mauritius, um, to the nation of Mauritius, that is, how... How important do you see this as being, and do you see there being like a, a battlefield in a sense, a new geopolitical battlefield over this area between the United States um, and China? Do you see the island of Mauritius versus the Chagos being differently important in in, in the future here? No, uh, you know it's a strategic base for us uh, and has been for many years, and we've poured a lot of infrastructure in there, uh, and. It, at the time that I was serving as ambassador, there were there were people agitating back then to return to their island uh, and return it the way it was when their ancestors were there. Uh, you know, these people haven't been on the island ever. You know, they just know that their great grandparents are buried there, uh, and literally, it's it's there's nothing there. Uh, so I, I don't. I think it gets blown out of proportion. I think it's one of those things that's sort of a a little deal that becomes an irritant, but it's not geopolitically significant. Um, if America didn't have Diego Garcia, we would have some other place like that. There are plenty of staging places, and everything that's there we put there because it was just a small u-shaped island that didn't have anything on it you know so it it, is not that important but some people like to get the uh attention uh of uh of making something that's a, a, a relatively insignificant thing into into a big deal so no i don't see it as a big deal it's it's a small deal that just gets some extra attention as someone who's hoping to go into a career in journalism, I appreciate that idea that we we that the press tries to make things seem like a bigger deal than they are. Um, but at any rate, uh, former U.S. ambassador to both Mauritius and the Seychelles under President Clinton, Mark Irwin, has been joining us. Thank you very much, Ambassador Irwin. I don't know if I, I, I told you this, but you were actually our first live guest on Pindrop. Um, and you will also be our first guest to be featured in our podcast. Thank you very much for joining us. It has been a pleasure talking to you. My only complaint is that we didn't have more time. I have many more questions to ask. Well, call me again. Uh, it's a, it's an honor to be your first uh, pin drop interview and your first podcast. It's my honor. And I wish you all the best success. Thank you very much, Ambassador. All right. We're going to go now to a, a break. All right, folks. Welcome back. We are heading now to our amazing student panel. The highlight of our shows, if not the guests, Hard to say sometimes. Today we have with us two George Washington University students who are actually from Mauritius themselves. We have Arushi. She is a freshman in a double major in psychology and political science. And we have Zoe, 
an international affairs major and a freshman, both at the George Washington University. All right. You both heard what Ambassador Irwin had to say regarding regarding Prime Minister Jagmeet. He emphasized his relationship, and he felt that he he wouldn't go any further. Were his words to becoming more uh, authoritarian? What 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 do you all make of of the Prime Minister at the moment in his actions since since? Uh, 2019. Do you think that there is any risk that he could be considered authoritarian, or do you think he's still fundamentally committed to the democratic process? Um, in all honesty, I I'm not sure I would qualify him as authoritarian, but I don't think he's a hundred percent committed to the proceeds of democracy either. Um, just because it's um, I mean it's a different electoral system, I guess, where. You know, you can take into account that we have um, votes quite often, but he also didn't get voted into office technically because it was passed down to him by his father. So, do with that information what you will. Um, Th- that was that was Zoe, by the way. Arushi, do you have any thoughts? I do have to uh, agree with what Zoe had to say. Um, I think one, like she pointed out, the fact that his father passed down the prime ministership to him. Uh, brings up interesting points about his, you know, his legacy and all of that. I also have to say that there was like a somewhat of a vote conducted after he was given the prime ministership and there were lots of questions about the validity of the vote and, you know, all of the things that go into running a successful transparent democracy. Yes, and on that note, you mentioned that there were some controversies and questions uh, around the 2019 election. Uh, the French diplomatic mission to Mauritius ultimately deemed them to be free and fair. But at the same time, it's understood that the use of state media at a minimum was used by the government greater than in, in previous elections. Is that your all's take on it as well? Uh, Understand, understanding to the extent that you had paid attention to uh, previous elections, did you feel like the use of state media was unusually um, weighted in 2019? Um, I'm going to have to agree. They had an increased media presence, um, but the state media was also kept in check by um, independent outlets such as um, L'Express or even um, The Weekend, And you know, these other outlets used social media, even Facebook, um, talk shows, podcasts, to kind of counter um, any fraudulent practices, not that there were any um, in the elections, but they just kept everybody on their toes and accountable. And, like, um, heading back then from this, so, so, so there's still a very healthy freedom of the press in Mauritius, is what is what I'm hearing, and of course that's reflected by the Afrobarometer polls that that is a, a huge priority for everyday Mauritians. Um, I, I want to turn now to a subject that we haven't really talked about yet on the on this show, but we mentioned it briefly in the 1970 Time article. When they were talking about the problems that Mauritius was facing in 1968, one of the things they cited was quote mounting racial tensions. In the interview with Ambassador Irwin, there was no mention of there being such tensions. What is your all's analysis? Are the communities along racial lines or any lines, do they feel like, do you feel like there is a a division there that poses any amount of risk or has any amount of hostility? Um, 
Uh, I do think that there is a certain level of, um, I don't want to say hostility, but there's a focus on the differences uh, within populations in Mauritius. I think it's also one of the strong points of Mauritius in that we have a very diverse population with lots of people from a lot of places and religions and backgrounds. Um, but again, whether it's for like political reasons or other reasons, it tends to become a point that people in power use to divide the population, which may be why uh, you know these things have been seen in recent history. Zoe, what do you think? I I have to agree with Arushi. Um, I especially agree with the fact that you know, following, I'm going to relate it to an event that kind of polarized um, people throughout the world, um, all of the um, Black Lives Matter um, protests and everything else that happened kind of put the issue back um, in focus. And I think it was handled really well because um, so many allyships were formed and a lot of people ended up um, cementing, you know, the way in which they could help the community by empowering the voices of people who thought that they were marginalized or who felt that they were marginalized. And I think that even though it's used by um, different politicians to kind of, you know, cement um, the divides, I think we're a very harmonious nation. We celebrate a lot of each other's cultures. I. Um, I believe that, you know, I have friends from so many different backgrounds and I love it, all of them so dearly. And I love the fact that I'm including into all of their celebrations, for example. I mean, Arushi next to me is from the Hindu, um, from a Hindu background. And I mean, I celebrate some of the festivals that she celebrates, which is just a really great way of being implicated. Um, with everybody and just, you know, getting everything done. I also do the same. Just <laughs> putting it out there. It's not a one-way street. So that's <laughs> uh, no, it, in all of my, my research about the island, sadly not having had the privilege to go there yet, it does seem like a very, very multicultural place, which I do think is something we value a lot in America, or at least especially in D.C. Uh, I know myself, kind of like you all, I'd love to celebrate holidays that I don't have any personal family connection to. I, I find it genuinely fun in a way to relate to other people. But uh, getting back to um, to sort of more current events uh, uh, stuff, I want to turn to the Chagos Archipelago. So Mauritius has, has laid claim to the archipelago for some time, but it has been administered by the UK through the Br British Indian Overseas Territory. There are now negotiations taking place. Arushi, I, I hope you can help us understand, to what extent is this a, this a major deal that these negotiations are happening like are, are we talking about like the the level uh, that we would get over like India and Pakistan negotiating over Kashmir or are, are we talking about something that is relatively minor something in the in the background of the national discourse in Mauritius I do think that um, you know matters of territory the way that Kashmir is or you know the Shagos archipelago Pelago is. Um, I think because of these type of situations, I think it goes down to the country themselves and their, you know, their background and their history and their attachment to set spaces. So while I wouldn't compare it to maybe Kashmir or, other, or like Israel and Palestine, I would say that it's definitely a big deal in Mauritius. Um, the, Chagos, the, the Chagos Islands are, uh, you know, a big part of Mauritian history and you know, Mauritian culture. So when 
the whole when the British, you know, essentially took over administration and kept Mauritius out of these talks, it wasn't great because you know you were it it was ignoring a really big part of their history. But I do uh, I'm I'm aware of the fact that these talks are very important, and, and I'm glad that they're happening now. And. What do you make of the fact that the Chagosian people or the, the refugees in the United Kingdom and Mauritius are claiming that they're being left out of, of these negotiations? And for that matter, I, I mean, what do you think of the of the logic that Ambassador Irwin put forth, that there is really nothing there? Um, he didn't he didn't say directly what we should do with that information, but th this idea that there's not much there. Uh, th I don't want to put words in his mouth, but what I heard hearing that, what the questions I was having in my mind, are there reasons that people would want to go back to these islands? So, so how problematic, if at all, is it that Chagosian people are not being, uh, their voices are not being heard, they're not at the negotiating table in the situation? I think it's a pretty big problem. Um, you know, even if the Chagos Islands don't have much to offer, maybe, it is still the homeland for these people. This, you know, this is where their families have been for ages, for years, for thousands of years even. Um, and it's where they come from. It's where you know they've grown up in in certain cases. So I think them being a part of these conversations is extremely important, uh, especially because it's their home and it's their land. So when they're left out, I think it leaves out a big part of the conversation and a, a big part of the rhetoric that should go behind these talks. All right. So moving on from from the Chagos then and. and um I want to turn to our, the last issue that we really discussed today, which is China. And this feels like throughout this episode, it's been a little bit uh, of a backdrop. And I think that's because unlike many other places like Southeast Asia, it is not clear that Mauritius is going to be a geopolitical battleground, right? In the Pacific, you have a lot of small island nations receiving aid from Taiwan, the United States, and also the People's Republic of China. What do you all all make of Mauritius's his future importance in this in this global competition that is intensifying? Do you think it's going to be always sort of a side field where you do have things like the Chinese free trade agreement, or do you think it'll actually become a lot more prominent in the years to come? Um. So I mean, I think that the Chinese free trade agreement is definitely more present in the sense that it's a lot more visible to the general population um, not that any other um, states who you know provide foreign aid um, aren't as important they're just kind of more on the down low um, but I don't think it's going to become a battleground as such they might be a pivotal point later on um, if the relations that they maintain with other states like the US or the People's Republic of China um, you know, keep going and increasing and, you know, becoming increasingly important, then I guess it could eventually become um, some sort of battleground, but I'd like to think um, that Mauritius is going to remain somewhat neutral because we're very remote, um, and even though we're part of the African continent, we're not directly related to it. We right. don't have the same resources or geographical um, capacities or landmass than any of those countries do. I don't want to put you on the spot here with this last question. Um, I'll direct it to Arushi first, but Zoe, I want to hear you answer it too. When 
It was said that God made Mauritius first and then modeled heaven after it. To, to what extent do you all think that is true? Like, is it, is, does it genuinely feel like the tropical island paradise we like to envision, especially this time of year with a terrible cold chill happening out in the United States? I promise you it is exactly like that. When I first moved to Mauritius in 2017, I landed and I was like, wow, the green is somehow greener here than it is <laughs> everywhere else. And I'm sure, Zoe, and anybody who's been to Mauritius will agree with me on that. I mean, I was born and raised there, and, you know, it's it's my homeland, it's what I know, and I definitely agree <laughs> with that statement. It's so great. There's so many different things to discover. I mean, the beaches are amazing. Very white, like, very sandy, soft beaches, very warm. Even though I wouldn't recommend going at this period of time in January, because right now it's cyclone season, so you might get oh. rained in. But best time to go would definitely be um, October, November, um, or October to December, actually, around that time would be the best. I'll um, have to put that on my radar for, for, my, <laughs> for, for my next fall break. Um, all right. Thank you very much, Zoe and Arushi, for joining us both as our student panelists today. And this is bringing our episode of Pin Drop today to an end, I am very sorry to say. But that does mean, folks, it is time to spin the globe. And our pin has dropped on Burkina Faso. So make sure to join us next Friday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time on GWRadio.com to hear the latest news, insights, and analysis surrounding Burkina Faso from the Pindrop team. Pindrop is a news department production of WRGW District Radio. You can listen to all of our episodes as well as bonus interviews on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Our guest today was former U.S. Ambassador to the Seychelles and Mauritius, Mark Irwin. Our student panelists were Arushi and Zoe. I am Francisco Camacho, anchor at Pindrop. Our researcher is Wajia Amir. Our, my co-host was Taylor McKinney. And our engineer, who saved us after a very rocky start this time, is Kate McCown. Thank you, and until we meet again. <laughs>